Gideon Levy is an Israeli journalist and author. Levy writes opinion pieces in a weekly column for the newspaper Haaretz that often focuses on the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. He's won numerous awards for his writing on human rights abuses in the occupied territories and is known for insisting that being an Israeli patriot requires one to be critical of the occupation. When he said recently that he's never been more ashamed of his country, he was defending his country against what he sees as an increasing tendency toward fascism. It must be unbelievably difficult to stay the course and speak from his conscience about the scale of the violence Israel is perpetrating in Palestine. In fact, Levy says it feels exasperating to write from this perspective and not have the impact that he would like. He still maintains that words are on the front line of this struggle. How the violence is understood and what can be said about it has a significant impact on what sort of violence is permitted. So too does the form of resistance. Levy maintains that if Gazans were sitting quietly, as Israel expects them to do, their case would disappear from the agenda. This is a people that are waged war against, within an occupied territory enclosed by a wall. Why is there a boycott against the occupied rather than the occupier? His writing is incredibly useful for people that want to understand the strategies of the Israeli leadership, which often uses provocation and assassination, a kind of brinksmanship design, he suggests, to renew the license for widespread destruction and pacification of the Palestinian people. In this sense, Levy says that Israel is the peace objector. Israel has imprisoned Gaza for many years, blocked them off from the sea, the air, and the land. It regularly uses violence and force to subjugate Gaza, rather than trying to coordinate a just withdrawal. Israel should not be amazed, Gideon says, for this reason, by the violence and hatred that it has sowed with its own hands. Instead, the IDF is waging war on the civilian population, showing contempt for the lives of Palestinian children in its pursuit of vengeance. This collective punishment is forbidden by international law, and at the current moment, and likely for several years, Israel will be on trial for genocide at the International Court of Justice. Increasingly, the world is opposed to the Zionist regime in Israel and knows that there can be no military solution. Forcing an understanding of that into Israeli consciousness is extremely difficult, though, Levy says. In his experience, people in Israel are not bothered by the moral aspects of the war. This is why Levy has shifted recently in his writing toward focusing on security and the pragmatic reasons why this genocidal bombardment, this fascist fixation on punishing Gaza, is a failing strategy. He says that October 7th has created a bloodbath by opening the floodgates to a collective, vindictive military campaign that must be stopped. But given his family history, the fact that his grandparents were killed in the Holocaust, the fact that he understands the specific forms that fascism has taken historically, I think it's significant that he said that Israel is slipping further into fascism. It will continue if the US, Canada, and Europe all keep averting their eyes. If the blindness continues, Israel will keep killing, destroying, and settling in the region. This wretched situation will be addressed by aggressive action by the peace movement, by all of us raising our voices in opposition, and given the inaction by those in Palestine rising up where necessary to defend their lives. This is because critics like Levy have the disturbing sense that, quote, 
If Israel wiped Gaza off the face of the earth, one can assume there would be no protest within the settler colonial Zionist state. Um, you know, so I'm often struck with um, crises like this one by sort of the politics of visibility. Um, many people say, yourself included, uh, that one must see the hellscape before we can believe it. Um, you know, this is something that Rashid Khalidi said recently as well, uh, that it has a transformative effect seeing it directly. Um, and if you don't, then you have to decide on the basis of, I suppose, um, your affinity or your allegiance, uh, as you've written, which dead children shock you more. Um, and I wondered, you know, just to kind of begin, as a journalist, what are your thoughts on the historical power that images have to alter reality or to keep it intact? And how could things be different politically if Israel, uh, if, if certain images were allowed to penetrate Israel's consciousness? So first of all, let me tell you, all images are allowed. Mm. It is something much worse than this. The media, by its own choice, chooses not to show them. It's not like there is a right. censorship over those, those images, which makes it much worse. Because we were always laughing at the Russian uh, Putin's Russian TV, which uh, doesn't show reality in Ukraine in the war. But it's much better there because there, there is, it's very clear. It's a pressure from the government and they don't have much choice. Mm. In Israel, you can show anything you want. Right. I think for many, many years, not from this war. I think for many, many years that if more Israelis would have been exposed to the atrocities of the occupation, to the life under occupation, to the human side of it on a, on a regular basis, I think political views would be totally different in Israel. Because right. I don't think that all the Israelis could live in peace with it. It is much stronger now in the war which is the first war without any opposition, any resistance, any critic, nothing. Hmm. And all this thanks to the fact that the Israelis are not exposed to the images from Gaza. Almost nothing. They have seen hmm. nothing. And, and, and this is crucial in, in historical terms and also in actual terms. Hmm. I think this war maybe would have lasted less if Israelis, all Israelis would have seen what we are doing. Yeah, and, and this is the potential power, right? The so-called transformative power um, to stop it, right? To This is sort of what I'm pointing to in terms of altering reality. Um, you know, your writing has been really devoted for, for decades to try, trying to kind of expose this reality and it's sort of many layers. Um, but now you're sort of suggesting that there is, you know, a turning point taking place where you have at least, you know, 22,000 people killed in the assault on Gaza since October 7th, 172 uh, IDF soldiers killed, um, you know, 100 Hezbollah fighters. No, many fighters. more soldiers, sorry. There were over 500 soldiers killed, including oh, okay. on the 7th. Okay, um, right. This is, the, this is of course, uh, uh, you know, needs to be part of the discussion. 
but it's just it's we're in a situation where um, the destruction seems unending. Um, you've written that, like the horizon, this goal of attacking Hamas's infrastructure will keep getting further away. Um, so the question I think on a lot of people's minds is like, what kind of intervention could stop the momentum of the war machine now? Like, it, does it have to be a, external? Given how I guess the IDF is reportedly withdrawing ground forces at the United States' behest, you know, how much is enough? Is one of the questions that your journalism has sort of tried to engage right. with. It could have come from within if there would have been a meaningful opposition and protest against the war. Right. But this doesn't seem to happen, didn't happen until now and will not happen. Uh, 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 demonstrations and protests stopped wars in Israel. Israel mm. had retreated from Lebanon after 16 years of, of uh, occupation, mainly because of uh, popular protest. But this mm-hmm. doesn't seem to, to be the case this time. So it will not be a domestic pressure. It will not be a decision by the politicians because they know that the majority of the people wants, wants to go on. So it can be only an external mm-hmm. uh, pressure. And the only meaningful external pressure is obviously the American one. Right. America could have done so many things with Israel if only, if only this unbelievable huge aid would have been conditioned. I don't even ask to stop the aid. But the fact that it is always unconditioned Mm -hmm. when the United States is in a position of asking Israel, suggesting Israel, when Israel knows that it can obey and it can also refuse. So the only one who has a leverage on Israel is the United States, and the United States doesn't seem to have any interest to use this leverage. Yeah, and um, you know, you've written, Europe covers its eyes and falls in line with the United States as well, for the most part. Um, but there, that there is like clearly no military solution to be had. Like, um, you know, I'm trying to kind of piece together what I've learned from engaging with like just so much of your writing. Um, but yeah, like you, you've talked about how terrorist attacks tend to not inspire a sense among Israelis of the connection between cause and effect, right? Or any level of self-criticism. It just doesn't happen. And in recent writing, you, you kind of almost seem resigned to the fact that the moral aspects of the war hardly bother anyone in Israel. And so you're focusing more on trying to motivate readers to kind of reassess the bombardment, the destruction in terms of the outcomes. Because of of course, like October 7th has kind of opened the floodgates of this kind of vengeful vengeful violence. Um, And so you seem to be kind of pivoting to a different rhetorical tack. You know, why appeal now to Israel's self-interest and concern over its image internationally, as you kind of have uh, recently. First of all, in any case, it's a lost it's a lost battle, and in this war, even more so, because I'm really a very lonely voice this time. I mean, right? I, I, I can't think about five more people who who maybe think like me. There are many more, but who really express it. Right. I, I I don't have five names. I don't have five names. And it was never like this. So in any case, 
I don't have any illusion and I never had that I can really convince people. The only thing I try to do is many times to provoke them and to make them think, mm-hmm. to make them put some doubts at all and to try to load those who are very close to my views, to load them with more ammunition, with more arguments, because I don't hear them, maybe more arguments. I, I, I don't know why I do it. I know one thing, that the moral discourse is now totally irrelevant. Right. While the practical one might be relevant if Israelis will see that they don't gain anything and they only lose. Mm-hmm. This might, I mean, still people I hope are rational. And if you don't gain anything and only lose, maybe you will uh, think it over. Yeah, I mean, this is something that <clears throat> in reading your book, The Punishment of Gaza, really jumped out at me is this idea that, as you say, words are on the front line. They can justify, validate, purify, polish and clean. You know, if you say war you are saying heroism and sacrifice and you're obscuring, as you say, the fact that Israel is a violent and dangerous country devoid of all restraints. Um, in some ways you say the last of the rogue States. And so, you know, one of the things that you're, you're known for is saying that like to be a patriot in Israel is to embrace that critique um, and to call out the kind of brinksmanship, brinksmanship of the regime. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have so many questions, but um, you know, because and I sympathize with what it must, you know, I can't know, but I sympathize with, with what it must feel like to feel like, you know, you are alone, virtually alone in objecting. Um, but one of the reasons why, in some sense, you're alone is is um, propaganda, right? Hasbara, which you say is now an immoral machine. Can you explain for people what Hasbara is? I don't think it's widely known, like how it operates, what purpose it serves, and maybe also how it's faltering today in some ways, given that, as you say, the evil can no longer be hidden by any propaganda? So, first of all, Hasbara is mainly aimed to the outside, mm. to the, the world jury, and to, to any other people and countries and states overseas. Hasbara, we don't use the word Hasbara, or we use it less in terms of uh, the domestic propaganda. Okay. But in both cases, we are dealing with propaganda. I think when it comes to Israel from within, I would more use the term brainwash because Mm. we get it really from early, early childhood. I know how I was brought up in this country and I was born here and lived all my life. From very, very early, we keep on getting the same values in school, in the youth movement, at home, everywhere. We are the victims. We are the chosen people. We know better. We have more rights than any other people because we are victims. We are always right. All the Arabs want only to kill us and to push us to the ocean. Uh, the, the international law is something very, very important, but it doesn't. It's not valid on Israel. Israel is a special case. You cannot judge Israel according to universal criteria because we are a special case, and so many, many other things which we get almost with the milk of our mothers. 
the fact that we are also always the victims, always. And in many cases, we are the only victims. Everything is forced on us. The occupation was forced on us. Ask every Israeli, he will tell you, I, I could uh, give up the, the, the occupation, but, you know, they forced it on us. We, we, have to, we have to be occupied because they forced us to be occupied. Or as the late Golda Meir once said, that we, she will never uh, forgive the Palestinians for forcing us to kill their children. That's a way of thinking. And that's, mm. that's much more than Asbara. Because Asbara is to take this war now and to explain that Israel didn't start it, that it doesn't have any context, and don't you dare to speak about a context like the General Secretary of the UN dared to do. There is no context, because if you speak about the context, you justify a barbaric attack, so you better don't try. That any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, and don't mm. you dare to be an anti-Semite, and that we are the 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 good ones, the liberals, the, the, the white ones vis-a-vis -vis those Palestinians who present only evil and, 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 uh, and uh, fundamentalistic ideas. So that's more or less Hasbara. Uh, but I think uh, within Israel, it's much deeper than Hasbara. It's really systematic brainwash. I just want to give you one more example. I think I was 20 when I first heard the word Nakba. I never wow. heard the word. Right. Never knew about it. We never heard. Nobody told us about the Nakba. Hmm. We were told a total different story. Total different story. So that's much more than Asbara. This is really a brainwash system. And the right. big collaborator of it, the biggest collaborator is obviously, as usual, the Israeli media. Sure. Yeah, it, it works. Like, that's what I'm hearing, is that it works to construct um, an entire worldview, right? A sense of being in the world that makes it impossible to see certain things, I guess. Like, as you put it, Israel is one tiny state whose eyes are shut and whose heart is sealed. You know, like that puts it very bluntly. Um, you know, the occupation uh, is, is something that is, you know, felt like in your bones on some level. Um, you know, this idea that like at one point you, in your book, you say Israel is the occupation. The occupation is Israel. But the manifestation of that now is that, you know, Israel is launching wars every two years. It's like a permanent state of instability. Um, and, you know, there are many critics on the left who claim that that's precisely how the United States likes it in the Middle East, that in many, in many ways it benefits from that instability. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily want to get, get into that um, because that's a tricky subject in some ways. But I wanted to pick up on something else that you were saying Um you know, around the sort of image that Israel uh, portrays of itself, but also within to itself, right? I've seen some sympathizers say that um, the IDF's use of this interactive escape route map is sort of evidence of the fact that um, this is an incomparably ethical occupying force, right? The most moral army in the world, as it's sometimes described. 
Um, you know, I know you've also written about this strategy of um, representing the conscience of the IDF in relation to like Ari Folman's uh, film, Waltz with Bashir, right? Um, the map, the apt, the movie, they're all serving a kind of ideological function. Um, how do we help people see through all of these things or see around them to see the truth, right? That as you say, um, these things aren't meant to save a soul. It's very hard to break those walls because those walls are protecting the Israelis. They're really separation walls from reality and from truth, which enable them to live so good about themselves. Because finally, even the leftists in Israel, at least part of them, struggle to feel better with themselves. They don't struggle to have a more a better place. They just want to feel better. Mm-hmm. And, and those walls, which as I said, and I, I must emphasize again, nobody imposed those walls on us. We choose to build them. We means the media, the education system, and all the consumers of those uh, uh, machineries, we want it to be like this because then we feel much better with ourselves. We don't have doubts. We don't feel guilty. We don't feel uh, that we did something wrong. We feel very uh, just. And how do you break this? It's a, it's a coalition of everybody who wants this status quo to remain as it is. It's the, the, the viewers and the readers and the editors and the writers and the, and the publishers and the government and the army and the secret service. Everyone is happy about the situation because we can all deny together. Hmm. It also gives you some, some kind of unity, which is another important value in Israel, at least in its rhetorics and especially in war times. Mm-hmm. Unity is above all now. Yeah, even this is quite a fascist uh, idea. Why should we be united? Why and and always being united means going along the ideas of the right wingers. This is what means being united in Israel. It's not going along the left. Right. It's going along the right wingers. This is your, your unity. And right. I think that, that no nobody can really see it as a value. I, I don't want to be united with the right-wingers at all, not by any price. Not. And you've also written that, you know, there is this kind of collapse of the left and the right um, into a form of fascism. Like one definitely gets the sense uh, looking at a lot of your recent pieces that you are convinced that Israel is more and more drifting toward fascism politically. And given your personal history and your knowledge of the specter of fascism in the collective imaginary of Israel, I can't imagine that you're using the term fascism lightly. Um, And I wonder, you know, is that term, the use of that particular term in its specificity mainly meant to like provoke? Um, And are you trying to draw attention to the, the kind of fear of democracy in Israel, the racism, the violence? Um, You know, because you have also said that it's a state pretending to be a democracy that's beset by militarism, lies, and repression. So, like, 
Why fascism in particular as a, as a descriptor here? First of all, uh, I don't use it too much. I use it because it became almost a cliche. Everyone, there was a time in which every expression was immediately a sign of fascism. And, and, and right. then, then what will you use when, when you get to, to real fascism? But mm. the last years, the recent years, don't leave room not to use this term. Because, you know, somehow we got used to this normal phenomena of living in, in normal, abnormal reality. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when you go to the West Bank and you see two villages, one is Jewish and one is Palestinian, and one village has all the rights in the world and the other and the resources, and the other village next by doesn't have any resources whatsoever. We normalized it. I mean, that's reality. I mean, most Israelis don't see any problem in it. But that's exactly the way that apartheid looks. I mean, how else does apartheid look if not like this? There's no other, no better expression for apartheid than this phenomena. Mm-hmm. But everything is normalized here. And in recent years, it went much far because this government for sure has fascist elements in it, no doubt. Uh, part of uh, the components of this coalition would have been uh, defined in Europe as neo-Nazis, no doubt about it. I think the extreme right-wingers in Europe are more moderate than, than Smotrich and Benkvir. Uh, so you have no other choice but to use this very extreme a, a expression and at mm-hmm. least in order to warn look at yourself you are turning into an apartheid state look at yourself you are turning into a fascist country this is what we are right and and you use the term apartheid as well which can be um divisive depending on where you're using the term um it's interesting to consider the ways in which now uh, south africa is bringing calls of genocide, claims of genocide to the International Criminal Court um, against Israel. These terms sort of differentiating them or trying to kind of disentangle them can be useful for thinking about the situation. But I sometimes wonder if it sort of obscures more than it reveals, which I, I guess speaks to why you would use it sparingly. You know, Israeli apartheid is distinct, right, from from South African, uh, from the, the form of apartheid that, that occurred in South Africa. In the sense that, as people like Robin Kelly have pointed out, um, the ruling regime in South Africa did not was not interested in destroying and di- displacing necessarily. It was more interested in certainly displacing to some extent, but primarily exploiting um, the black population in South Africa. Um, do you, when you use a term like apartheid, or when you see South Africa bringing a claim of genocide um, to the international court? Um, how does that register for you? How is it processed within Israel? Is it primarily met with like outrage? And how do you kind of interpret that outrage? First of all, for many years, I didn't use the word apartheid because mm. as long as the occupation seemed to be temporary, it's not apartheid, it's occupation. And mm. by the way, by definition, 
By the legal definition, military occupation is something temporary. And then it was good enough to call it uh, what it is, an occupation. But when you realize that there is not the slightest idea or intention to put an end to the occupation, you start to understand that this is going to accompany your country forever now. This will mm -hmm. be part of the regime in Israel. What is happening in the West Bank is part of Israel, for the good and for the bad. You cannot separate it. That's Israel. If after 55 years there is no perspective whatsoever to changing this reality, for sure no intention to do so by all the Israeli political map, because including the leftists, none of them has a serious intention to put a real end to occupation. They all want just to find a softer way to handle it, but none of them means a real Palestinian state like any other state in the world, with army, with everything normal that every state has in the world. None of them believes in it. And none of them believes, obviously, in the one-state solution in, in a full democracy. So then you realize that if it is here to stay, then you have to call it in new names. And I remember the process because throughout the years that I'm writing it, so many years, the terminology really changed. Mm. And even the way that this term terminology became legitimate in Israel also changed. Ten years ago, it was very hard to say apartheid. Mm. Today... It's becoming, I mean, not that everyone agrees that it's apartheid, but there's no problem to, to describe it as apartheid. I mean, mm. nobody will fall from the, from the chair if you call Israel an apartheid state. So there is a change, and, and this change is along the lines of, of the developments in, in, in the reality, on the ground. Yes, 20 years ago, we were not... We didn't deserve to be called apartheid, and now yes, because mm -hmm. it became part of us. Yeah, I mean, and I do appreciate how, um, you know, for people that are interested in trying to get a, a con like a concrete sense of the, the, the trajectory toward this moment, um, your book does kind of provide that, right? A kind of timeline. Um, and you say that there was a moment, in fact, your book opens with this kind of um, dramatic scene of, of saying goodbye to the occupation, uh, the kind of naive days of the Oslo Accords. Uh, but you say the truth is that, you know, that's far in the rearview mirror, that, that Israel has left Gaza only partially and only in a distorted manner, that there's really nothing that has changed in terms of the living conditions. It's just sort of realized that the occupation is maybe easier to manage remotely. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously um, disappointing that that your call for an end to occupation doesn't have uh, uh, the kind of purchase that it needs to, that your calls for like simply attempting to talk directly with Hamas rather than denying that you're ever going to negotiate with Hamas, that that just kind of goes unheard. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's it's I can see how it would be a hard sell, right? Saying like there's nothing to lose in talking. Um, because as you, as you, I think sort of 
um, you know, take the risk in saying Hamas wants to improve the wretched situation of their nation, right? So as you say, lift the siege, negotiate. Um, but I have definitely encountered the ways in which it's like very difficult to make that claim. Um, you know, you are met with so much vitriol when you when you make that argument because it is, as you say, very kind of deep seated. Um, the opposition to that, um, and and sort of you know the the difficulty of picking a, a side, as it were. Like you've you speculated on how things, for example, might have been different without Netanyahu, um, and I thought that might be interesting to kind of um, talk about. Like people I've spoken with tend to demonize him specifically as like the key culprit in creating contemporary Zionist policies and practices. But your your perspective is actually kind of different. Um, you're not one of the anyone but BB people, per se. Um, so I guess, like, in terms of Netanyahu, how would you articulate your own political vision for Israel uh, without Netanyahu? You know, with, in, in some sense, the, the assumption seems to be that that will lead to a free Palestine. But I don't think you see it that way at all. Not at all. I don't see anyone... Right now, maybe someone will emerge, but I don't see right now anyone who can lead Israel to a real change from within. No one. I remember I had my hopes when Barack Obama was elected. I saw that maybe he will be the man who will go for the change, for a real change. Obviously, I was totally disappointed, but I had this this almost emotional dream that he will do it. And I had the, the times of Oslo, as you rightly described, were also a sweet moment of illusion. But when I look backwards, it was a trap. So I don't see much changing if Netanyahu will go. If Netanyahu will go, Israel will become a more pleasant place. Hmm to live in. Uh, we will have a so-called normal prime minister uh, with, uh, with more modesty maybe and uh, more efficiency and people will get better care from the government and things will function maybe better and Israelis will be, some Israelis at least, will be happier but when it comes to the core issue which defines Israel, and let's not forget that what defines Israel from the first day is are the Palestinians. The Palestinians are defining Israel. Hmm. And our attitude toward the Palestinians defines the regime of Israel much more than anything else. And when it comes to this, to this core issue, there will be little change. There will be change in rhetorics. And again, all those traps like meeting Abbas and maybe one day, who knows, talking to Hamas, which right now is is not relevant, but maybe, but it will lead to nowhere because the basic, basic belief is that no agreement can change the fact this this land belongs only to us. Right. And, you know, the... Um political situation was volatile, of course, um, before October 7th. Um, 
you've written that, you know, when things get very, um, you know, uh, chaotic, preventing the army, the IDF from running amok requires a quote, strong and judicious political echelon, but that like basically Israel does not have that. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if you wanted to speak to like from your perspective, because, you know, we're reading like international news sources on the subject that I don't think are giving the full picture. The Supreme Court, uh, their, the recent decision uh, to kind of protect the judiciary from this political takeover that I guess the Netanyahu regime has been seeking. Um, did you did you have anything to say about like whether you are heartened by that or whether that actually like isn't the whole story? Because I, I think like that's something people need a little bit more context on. There was this fear at a certain point and within Israel as well, right, that that political takeover was going to have very significant consequences and there were massive protests. Um, was it the protests that actually, do you think, influenced the Supreme Court decision? And, and what does it say to you about the politics of Israel right now? Again, I couldn't, I couldn't agree. I couldn't join my friends even. Mm. Because first of all, the Supreme Court is one of the collaborators with the occupation. And the Supreme Court had betrayed its, its, its mission and also its prestige, its fake prestige, in really being the gatekeeper. Mm. It was a gatekeeper for many things, and the best example is really yesterday. But when it came to the occupation, the Supreme Court systematically supported the occupation, maintained the occupation, strengthened the occupation, and above all, legitimized and normalized the occupation. So I cannot be shocked if this Supreme Court will be weaker. Yeah, it will be worse if if the Supreme Court would have been weaker, Israel would have been a worse place. But, you know, by definition, it's hard for me to speak about Israel as a democracy. So therefore, cracks in this democracy, which is not a democracy, bother me less than an average Israeli who is sure from the left, who is sure that he is living in the only democracy in the Middle East. And then comes this Netanyahu, and, and, and put cracks on this democracy. And, and he's scared because everything will be destroyed. But everything is destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and this, is the, this is the thing that you're, you're obviously strenuously trying to communicate, right? That to use the term, um, you know, again, and, and carefully, fascism is also for you, I think, about the legitimate legitimization of evil, right? And and what and it's about what it does to to the occupier, right? To the settler, to the perpetrator. Um, you know, Arundhati Roy has written uh, recently that quote: "The occupation is breeding this monstrosity. It's doing violence to both perpetrators and victims." Um, so that self belief that you live in a democracy, that kind of delusion. Um, is is itself a kind of impact, right, of the occupation, um, as you as you said, like occupation is not just the domain of the government; it's about these multiple multiple spheres of labor, very much including the media. Um, so, if that's the case, uh, um, you know, we have to like really figure out uh, that that conundrum. Like, what are the 
psycho psychological effects. For example, for IDF soldiers who you know who partner with the government to carry out these atrocities, like the question for me fundamentally here is like, how is evil as such legitimated? Right, Legit- legitimated is the key question for me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you're obviously using the term evil here as well, like very carefully. Um, what is it about the the occupation that you feel is worth characterizing as evil, right? Because what I what I hear um, you trying to communicate too is that you are not actually um, uh, distancing yourself per se. Like when you talk about the actions of Israel, you use we, you say we, and you identify the actions at the same time as blatantly illegitimate. So, you know, how do you, I guess, reconcile these things and how are you communicating on that register of talking about like the legitimization of evil in relationship to like the erosion of democracy here? That's a very good observation because I always hesitate if to use we, but I know that the we is more effective. Sure. First of all, on a factual ground, it is we. I was born here. <clears throat> I never le- le- left Israel. I mean, I never lived elsewhere. I never had plans to leave Israel. I don't have plans to leave Israel. I'm part and parcel of Israel. I was raised here. I was educated here. Everything happened here. I am an Israeli like any other one. And as an Israeli, I carry some kind of accountability or responsibility to what's going on, especially if we call this country a democracy. So if it's a democracy, for sure you carry some responsibility. I mean, the individual has some responsibility. I also, in my young years, never took any measures uh, um, against. I was never part of a protest movement. I never demonstrated. I served in the army. I mean, I did everything like any normal, normal so-called Israeli, average Israeli. So I feel part part of, of Israel. By all means, not. I don't feel mm. that uh, I'm excluded. I'm excluded mm. maybe because of my thoughts, but not because of my culture my language, my heritage, my my citizenship. Mm-hmm. It's the only citizenship I, I have. And having said all this, I also know that it's more effective to, to say we, but, but there's one thing that it's very hard for me to say because in Israeli media, they're using a lot our troops. Right. Our troops. This is many times one step too much for me. Right. Uh, uh, i appeal to unity. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, yes, I am part of it. And the normalization of evil is the outcome of everything we spoke about until now. That's the outcome. Right. Because the, the evil behavior is not only normalized, it also legitimized, justified. And above all, the average Israeli will tell you it was forced on us. Mm. We didn't want to be like this. We are not like like this. Look how we send rescue teams to any earthquake in the world. We are the first one to build the field hospitals in the Philippines when there are floods there. 
So how can you talk about us as, as being evil? Our evilness is aimed mainly and maybe only at the Palestinians. Hmm. It will penetrate also into the other society because you cannot stop it there. And you see it already, like many other phenomena which start in the occupation and slowly, slowly penetrate to our daily life in Tel Aviv, like hmm. violence, aggression, and many others. But basically, our evil behavior is aimed mainly at the Palestinians because there we can justify it. There we have a whole set of of explanations and justifications why we are so evil. And we don't even call it evil because it's not being evil. It's protecting ourselves. It is a, a behavior that any other country would have used. Same policy, this you hear again and again. No country would have reacted differently. What choice do we have? Etc., etc. All those justifications are relevant only with the attitude toward the Palestinians. Right. And, and it's echoed by, amplified by, reinforced by other settler colonial states like the United States and Canada, where I am. This idea that Israel has a right to defend itself is repeated over and over and over again as a legitimate uh, legitimization. And, you know, what I think is really impactful about what you're saying is that while it's difficult to determine who decided on all of this, to quote you, uh, Israel is responsible for all that happens in Gaza. Um, you know, and so it's it's something that is is, as you say, like useful ammunition rhetorically, politically to like remind people of the fact that, you know, of course, of course, uh, Hamas bears responsibility, uh, but not not for the level of disproportionate killing that has taken place. Right. Where, right. Where a hundred plus times more people have been murdered in Gaza since October 7th. You know, you describe Israel's leadership uh, and its strategy of kind of provocation and assassination, a kind of brinks, brinksmanship that's designed, you're suggesting, to renew the license for widespread destruction. Um, that I don't think is part of the narrative, that Israel, to use your term, is a peace objector. Um, it's instead this idea that it's sort of forced upon Israel. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's just like once you start... Um, weighing in that way, it's very difficult to have any sort of, it feels like it's very difficult to have a constructive conversation with people about the politics of responsibility there. Um, and so maybe the place where we can go is to stay in that kind of like affective realm. Like you often talk about the shame you feel, that accumulating, intensifying shame that you feel like in response to the massacres, the detentions, um, the pogroms committed by Israelis against Palestinians. Like, you know, I wonder if you could reflect, it's, it's, it's a hard question to ask, and I apologize. Like, could you reflect on shame as a political force? Like, why you feel that moral compulsion to let it in, and why so many Israelis seem stubbornly attached to a certain shamelessness? A few weeks ago, I was in a conference in Istanbul, and on stage, I said that I was never so ashamed of being Israeli like in this war. And somehow it leaked to the social media and then to Israeli TV, and they showed it here, this clip when I say this sentence. 
mm-hmm. and we came here. I never faced such a campaign. I mean, within mm-hmm. hours, I got like 1,000 uh, text messages and uh, phone calls. Someone spread, I don't know how it works, but someone spread my phone number. Most of the people didn't even know who I am. Just mm-hmm. called and, and cursed and left messages and cursed. It was only for two days, Friday, Saturday, a weekend, which I will never forget because I couldn't use my phone. I couldn't use it. I couldn't answer any phone call. It was one after the other, one after the other. Only because I say that I was ashamed to be an Israeli, especially in times of war, especially in Istanbul, which is obviously now the evil place uh, for Israelis because uh, Erdogan said some things about the war. There are two emotions which guide me. Let me add another one, and this is guilt feeling. I feel very guilty, that's the truth, toward the Palestinians. And I feel ashamed as an Israeli for what we do. But between the two, the guilt feeling is even stronger. I really feel guilty. I cannot uh, convince anyone that he should feel guilty. I cannot convince anyone to feel ashamed. I can just say what I feel, because that's really emotional. It's not rational. It's really emotional. Mm-hmm. I feel very guilty. I, any Palestinian, in front of any Palestinian, I, I have guilt. Yes. Because right. I took his land. That's the truth. Did I have a choice? Didn't I have a choice? Could it be different? Could it be different? By the end of the day, we took their land. And we took mm-hmm. their lives. And what is much worse than this is that we never stopped. It's not only 48. It's the same guidelines ever since 48. Didn't stop for a moment until this very moment in Gaza. Right. So that's my feeling. I, I never try to convince others to feel the same. I understand that when I say that I'm ashamed, people get shocked because you must be proud in your country. I mean, mm. this goes without a saying. I mean, a patriot is proud of his country. If he is ashamed by his country, something is wrong with him. Same, by the way, if you say that you criticize Israel or even if you say you hate some things in Israel. This doesn't make you less Israeli or even not less patriot. On the contrary. I'm not sure that someone who blindly support everything that Israel does, he's a bigger patriot than someone who criticizes Israel and is ashamed in Israel. This shows how attached I am to this place. Because wouldn't I feel so Israeli, I wouldn't be ashamed. You know, I'm not ashamed for 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 the massacre in, in Rwanda. I'm not ashamed because I'm not part of it. I don't feel guilt, obviously, but I'm also not ashamed. I'm very ashamed because I'm part of of what's going on here. So, but those are things that you cannot deliver to almost any Israeli. Yeah, I can, I can sense the struggle uh, kind of in your voice uh, around this, but also like the idea that your expression of shame would, you know, um, create this backlash is interesting, right? Like that, um, there'd be this violent response to you expressing shame because yes, like patriotism is associated with this kind of blind pride 
um, you know, that's, that's very telling, uh, I think, right? It suggests that shame is dangerous in the context of a settler colonial regime that is shameless, that is shamelessly, um, you know, weaponizing a certain kind of uh, nationalism uh, and, and unity. But, you know, uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Thanks for, for making the time. Um, the last question I had, you know, really stems from um, something that you wrote, this really kind of somber, heartfelt, and clearly, you know, very disturbed moment in one of your recent articles on, you know, the aftermath of October 7th and the ongoing bombardment. Um, you say at the end of the article, we'll probably have to meet again in the next war. And there's just like this kind of um, level of maybe resignation there, the idea that we'll have to do some soul searching in the next war because clearly the culture doesn't allow for it right now. Um, but at the same time that there's resignation, it, it sounds like there's a degree of hope. Um, and it just reminded me of, you know, Bob Dylan's anti-war ballad, God on Our Side, where you know, he concludes that song by saying, if God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. Um, you know, what were you thinking when you when you wrote that line uh, in that piece? It's a paraphrase of uh, another great artist, the playwright Hanoch Levin, who is not very well known abroad, but he, he's not alive anymore, but he wrote the best Israeli plays and most of them satires. And he has a very famous song, You and Me and the Next War. There is a translation into English in it. You can find it, it's amazing. When we go to sleep, it's you and me and the next war. When we wake up in the morning, it's you and me and the next war. Really very powerful. So when I say it, the next war, I thought about Hanoch Levin and this feeling that we normalized even this. That's our life, me and you, and the next war. It's very clear. And we normalized it and we think it cannot be any different. Mm-hmm. Everyone is sure that we can do nothing about it. That's for sure. It's like earthquakes in Japan. Every two, three years, there is an earthquake. So in Israel, every two, three years, there is a war. People take so much responsibility that they really think that it's not in our hands at all. Nothing. I don't want to blame only Israel for this, yeah? But they go to the other extreme. We Israelis have no responsibility about it. Whatever we tried to do, it was always refused. We always wanted peace, but they don't want peace and they just want to destroy us. We tried everything. And while the fact is that we never tried even once, seriously, to put an end to it, seriously to change it, never ever. So this normalization of feeling, and you have it now, because we went to this war and all those declarations again, declarations that we will crash Hamas, Aza will be different, will change reality, they will be safer in the South. 
while all of us know that it's just another two, three years for the next war, whatever the outcome will be, because it will never be followed by a political step. Never. By a political change, by a change in the way of thinking, by a real deep change. So we are remained with you and me and the next war. That's maybe also a nice ending. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I just, um, yeah, I really uh, appreciated that, that line and just the kind of um, the power and clarity of your writing and just, you know, the, the courage it takes to be alone in some ways um, in your critique of the regime. Thank you really, uh, uh, you know, so much for uh, making the time today. Thank you, Scott. For me, it was a challenge because it was a highly interesting uh, conversation so different from most of the interviews so thank you and thank you also for for your readings because it almost embarrassed me how detailed you were about my writings <laughs>